Hello, and welcome back to The Will and Rob Show. My name is Will Stockdale, Ministry Associate with Ministry State, here with my very good friend and colleague, Robert Hassler. Um, I'm going to avoid all your titles, Robert. I think that we've gone through that enough, and, and, and uh, I just don't think that's what's important. What, what is more important, though, is that you chose a new theme music, um, intro, outro music. That new I hear new music, man. Yeah, yeah. I didn't even know about that until uh, I listened to the release, and uh, I was like, hey, this is pretty good. Yeah, you know what? I went for more of a little bit of a country vibe, a little bit more I, of a blues country vibe. I noticed um, that. I noticed. I that. think that it 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 represents us well as two native Texans, yeah. um, and so that's why I chose it. And actually, it was kind of an accident. I kind of stumbled upon it. I'm always sort of looking at seeing what the new music is out there for available for podcasters and stuff like that. And I found that one. I thought, you know what, this would, this would be a good time to make a switch. Well, and this is probably something that I should announce and let people know that you are aware of at our co-working space where we work in Eastern market. There's a woman who shares the table that we work at and uh, she has nicknamed me because I wear cowboy boots, my, my ostrich or my uh, lizard boots, sometimes uh, Calvinist cowboy, which Ooh. I, which I have really or Presbyterian cowboy, but either way, regardless, it has become something of a very meaningful moniker for me. You should get uh, that on a belt buckle. Oh my gosh, I really should. That's such a good idea. You know, massive belt buckle. <laughs> with with John Calvin, and it says Calvinist cowboy on it. That'd be pretty good. Oh wow! You know, I've <laughs> never worn a belt buckle, so this would be a whole new phase for me. But it's not a bad idea. It's not. What about a bolo should... tie? Have you ever worn a bolo tie? No. And I, you know, I've never been a big, I like the, I respect the bolo tie when I see other people wear it. Yeah. That's exactly how I do. I I look at it and I go, wow, that's, you gotta have some serious energy to to pull that off. And I don't have it. That's kind of what I recognize. about bolo. It might be how other people have responded to me when I have a mustache. It's like, (laughs) I would never wear that, but like, good for you, buddy. (laughs) That's exactly right. That's exactly right. Which now that I say it in that way, makes me really rethink the decision about (laughs) my mustache, but doesn't, doesn't mean I don't want to grow one again. So um, what we need to begin this episode actually with a mea culpa. Uh, yes, you, you mis misled our, our dear audience. I did. I did. And I'm sure that there are people who are here right now who are deeply disappointed, hopefully not distrustful. We, we hope that the Will and Rob show has been and continues to be one of the institutions in this country that you can continue to trust. So I had gotten my dates mixed up. I had gotten my dates mixed up. I had thought that we were recording with, with Dr. Van Dixhorn today on the 12th. However, that is on the 14th. So when I emailed his assistant, I learned this, which means that we will be releasing the episode next week. So uh, I'll have the money for you soon. I have the money for you soon. I promise. Just come back (laughs) in a couple of days and I'll have it. Uh, so we'll be we'll be recording that in a couple of days and then releasing it. So my apologies, you're you're but you you have us again. You're stuck with us for another week, but hopefully, um, hopefully you can wait. Hopefully you're not going to be too too uh, anxious with anticipation. Yep, we're just building we're just building the suspense at this point. Yeah, yeah. It's like when you're reading a mystery novel and they like and then and then it like goes back in time a little bit to set up the context a little more. I so, like that. I yeah. like that. That's really interesting. But we do have something that we did want to talk about. We had something that we want to talk about and discuss instead, something that um, has become 
relevant uh, in the Twitter sphere among conversations. In fact, actually, I was meeting with someone yesterday uh, who brought this up, um, and that is the broad topic of religious freedom. And so what is it? Why does it matter? Um, why should we care about it? What can we do about it? Um, and then the other was there has been a, a video that you told me about, Robert, that has kind of been circulating. And I wonder if you could set up the context a little bit about this uh, this this, uh, this sermon clip. Yeah. So I'm, I'm assuming you're talking about the video of John MacArthur, Johnny, Johnny Mac, as he is known. I am. Uh, amongst his, his uh, friends and, and adherents. Um, yeah. The, the video kind of went viral because it was, it was an interesting video um, and granted it's a clip. We, I, I didn't get to actually see the full context of the video, but the, the clip it, itself is basically an admission of, of John MacArthur that he is, does not believe in religious freedom uh, and that religious freedom was a form of idolatry uh, and that people are not free to believe whatever they want. Now, I think you, you and I were kind of discussing this and I, I think what was so interesting about the video or maybe even right the word is weird, weird about the video is that he seems to be re- substituting religious freedom for universalism that obviously we, as, as Christians who um, are committed to the exclusive truth of the gospel of Jesus Christ, we are not uh, universalists. And so if uh, John MacArthur means we are not free to believe whatever we want, he, and that's what he's talking about, then yes, he, of course, he's correct. We are not free to believe whatever we want. We are, uh, we are commanded to believe what is true uh, as prescribed in scripture. And so I guess that's what he was getting at. But what was interesting was that he used the words religious freedom, which I think for most people has a completely different meaning besides universalism. Yeah. At one point he says, so the context is he says that he, the new administration had come to him. I'm assuming he's talking about president Biden's administration had reached out to him and told him that this administration was going to be fully supportive of religious freedom. And then he says, well, what does that do? I don't care about religious freedom, religious. And this is basically what he says, religious freedom sends people to hell. That's a form of idolatry. We don't, we want people to believe truth, which is Christianity, not this idolatrous form of uh, religious freedom. Now that something that is weird about it, that I know as I was listening to is that he, he, it's, it's kind of a Ningo Montoya. You keep using that phrase. I don't think it means what you think it means when he says, uh, religious freedom sends people to hell. Um, that's, that's not right. He seems to be speaking of universalism in a way, as in religious freedom is the same thing as you can believe whatever you want and whatever you want gets you to heaven. The kind of Oprah Which, Winfrey theology, right? Like faith is a mountain and we all have different, or uh, God is a mountain. And we all have different paths to get to the top, but you know, they're all the same kind of thing. That was yeah. that's like the Oprah Winfrey universalism. That's so popular in America today. Yeah, which is also weird because it's almost like he's assuming that when the government says that they're for religious freedom or for non-state interference in religion, that therefore they view all religions as equally true, valid, and legitimate, which, you know, as if as if the state's stamp of approval, which it isn't allowed to give, but as if the permitting to allow false forms of religion to exist means that they think that they're lead to truth or that they have some bearing on the metaphysical claims that they're making, which is also really bizarre. So I don't, 
you know, just on the face of it, it was really troubling. And it stirred up a lot of traction, got people saying like, look, these evangelicals, these Christians actually are against religious freedom. They don't want religious freedom. It's only, okay, well, that's an issue we need to talk about or deal with. But then the other side is, um, but, but he's again, not even using the term in the actual sense of what, what religious freedom really means. And so, um, you know, this is, this is an issue that uh, if you're left, right, or center, you should probably be concerned about uh, John MacArthur aside, he, he has gotten some people thinking about it a little more and considering it. And so Robert, uh, when you, when you think about religious freedom and you think about maybe uh, what it means for us or why it's important, what comes to your mind? Yeah. I mean, I think there's a couple things. I think there's the history of religious freedom, particularly in this country that influences all these conversations, which that's kind of a that's a whole nother topic, but I think there's some important things in there about our history with um, established and uh, established churches and then disestablishmentism um, in this country. Uh, and uh, uh, what are the, you know, are there places or spaces for established churches, either at the federal or state or local level? Um, and that's been an inter- interesting debate within our country for, you know, especially near the founding, but um, even as late as the uh, 19th century, there were still, you know, established churches in this country. Um, but I think practically, as we think about it today, you know, I, I often see a lot of um, uh, sort of evangelical types uh, sort of lament that Christians seem very protective of their religious freedoms or their religious rights in this country. Um, and that that we need to be more uh, amenable to the idea of relinquishing our rights, of sacrificing our rights, um, because that's what we're called to do um, in scripture. And I guess I would sort of push back a little bit on that idea, um, because I think religious freedom uh, is, Christians should be for religious freedom today, because it is a way that we love our neighbor, uh, particularly our neighbor who doesn't um, believe or subscribe to the same confession of faith that we do. Um, We have to admit that that sort of conservative slash evangelical Christianity uh, in this country represents a pretty strong uh, 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 population with, with quite a bit of power um, and opportunities to leverage that power. Um, whereas some of our uh, fellow citizens, uh, either maybe in Muslim communities uh, or Jewish communities or other religious communities don't necessarily have that. And so, um, to advocate for re- religious freedom for the Christian church uh, is one way that we can love our neighbors in other religious faiths because we suspect and, and expect that the religious freedoms that we ask for ourselves we, uh, uh, and that we expect from our government, uh, they, they would in, in, um, likewise uh, protect for other religious communities. And so to say, hey, we don't want to give up our tax, you know, tax break is one that often gets talked about, um, you know, to say, hey, don't tax churches um, for Christians to defend that is a way that we love our neighbors uh, in maybe mosques or, or temples or synagogues, because we say, hey, don't tax them either, because that's not um, uh, uh, within the, the bounds of what this country believes about religious freedom. And so I would just, I would sort of maybe push people a little bit to think about the way that protecting religious freedoms in this country, especially for Christians, uh, is a way that we love our neighbors and other faith communities as well. Right. I think there's this kind of cynical um, suspicion that people have when we talk about religious freedom, that 
people who are non-Christians or people who might disagree with uh, protecting these rights that we have. And well, I think we can get to one of the things about um, religious freedom is that something that goes way beyond its inscribing in the First Amendment, and that you can argue that it goes all the way back to Tertullian, actually one of the early church fathers, at least the idea of its importance is that it goes way, way back um, in the history of Christian thought. But that religious freedom is not a code word um, for Christian freedom. That for us, we believe that religious freedom is good and healthy because it is for all people of all faiths. And here's what I think also, in addition to this, if you are reformed also, that religious freedom, the First Amendment, the, the freedom of conscience, the freedom to, to believe what you believe um, is deeply supported by the reformed tradition. Here's what I mean. Uh, if you believe that it is only by the power of the Holy Spirit that someone is regenerated and brought from death to life, someone cannot just say, um, I am a Christian or yes, I believe in God and be a Christian. It takes a work of the Holy Spirit. It is more than just the saying of something. This is different from uh, Islam, for example, which is why, uh, and there's been mistaken times in church history this happened, but in Islam where you can have people convert at the tip of the spear, because what you're asking for them to say is that Allah is God and Muhammad is his prophet. And so uh, just by saying that you then become a Muslim, but for a Christian teaching of being saved, uh, it is it is not something that is just stated. You cannot force someone to believe something that is a mysterious working of the Holy Spirit. And so because of that, we need to leave open this option of religious freedom um, for the Holy Spirit to be at work rather than putting restrictions on people's belief. No, I think that's totally right. Um, I think what then we sort of arrive at is a conversation about, um, uh, okay, if we're not going to have, uh, if we are going to have religious freedom, which I think, you know, that's pretty baked into this country. I don't think it's going away anytime soon. I mean, even the founding of America, you know, is a bunch of really distinct religious, particularly Christian, but other religious sects coming to the the colonies in order for in, in order to protect their religious freedom. And so I don't really think that's going away anymore. But then we, we sort of arrive at a conversation then about, you know, can there be a preference, a preference for particular religions or particular creeds by the government while allowing toleration for others? And I think that's really where we arrive at this question of the public square, because um, what I think has been sort of proven to be sort of faulty thinking from the very beginning uh, was this idea of a naked public square, that there, there's this opportunity in America because of our religious freedom that, that anybody can come into the public square uh, and sort of advocate for their creed or their ideas in, in the quote-unquote marketplace of ideas without it being biased or preferential towards some notion of truth. And I think what we've realized, uh, especially now today in, in wake of uh, gender ideology and um, uh, the LGBTQ movement and things like this, that there actually isn't such thing as a public square, that some, some creed, some uh, claim to truth will take preference in the public square that other creeds will then have to sort of grapple with. And I think that that's really, I think, 
what's going on and what people are most concerned about when we talk about religious freedom, because they seem, I think what they've rightly noticed is that uh, this country historically has been a place where that public square was preference towards Christianity or sort of classic Christian creeds. And now it's sort of reversed and, and, and now far more um, influenced or swayed by uh, the, the creeds or the truth claims of something like secular atheism or humanism uh, versus sort of classic Christianity. So there's that, there's that book by uh, Rebecca McLaughlin, right? Secular creeds, mm-hmm. um, which I think you've written a book review for, or you've read recently. I've done a little bit of work with it with some, with some youths. Ah, the youths. Okay. The youths. Good. Um, yeah. I, I you know, I'm trying to think here how we, we got here. And a lot of this has to do with um, policy decisions that were made in the sixties Um decisions prior to that that had to do with immigration acts that opened the United States to a, a great different diversity of cultures. And so um, post-World War II America, revolutionary 1960s America, uh, you know, and as I, as I look to people trying to reformat um, what is the public square in this country, uh, the seeds go way back beyond that. I mean, there's a lot of enlightenment seeds in there, but uh, as they as maybe to use a term that is contested, the elites have, have tried to rework um, how we think through our differences here. There has been an attempt to say, okay, this religious thing is getting way too complicated um, and we don't believe it anyways. Uh, and it's, you know what, it's just for the weak. Uh, it's just for the unintellectual. Us advanced people actually know what's really going on. Um, that it is actually a cultural difference that we have here. There's a co- cultural, artifactual, behavioral difference that we have here, a practice difference that we need to work on, not actually deep-seated religious beliefs, not actually convictions, not actually deep-held thoughts about God and who he is and what he has for us. So that actually is causing us more issues. Let's focus instead on these cultural issues and work out them. So, I, you know, I, I'm just curious how we got here because I don't think this is as true anymore, but for a long time in our history, I think uh, that religion wasn't taken very seriously by the academy. It's still not. I mean, it's still largely by the college administrators and, and professors. The idea of having a serious faith is is really weird. I think it's worse in America than in England, for example. Mm. I think it's much worse in the States than it is over in England. But um, I think things might be changing somewhat. Uh, again, as we talked about last week, the the kind of paganistic paganist practices that are taking root. Um, but at least for the time being, there has been a dismissive this dismissiveness um, from the well-educated elites towards behavioral practices that view them as like aesthetic preferences more than they are actually truth claims about reality and um, or social hierarchy, a, right? Like being uh, a deacon or be, like being a deacon or an elder at your sort of local, you know, mainline Presbyterian or a mainline Protestant church sort of works, you know, helps you when you want to advance in the boardroom because it's at least historically, because it's sort of this idea of like social hierarchy. And so that, but that doesn't have anything to do with about like a truth claim to it or a conviction about, you know, the inerrancy of scripture or something like that, that has more to do with sort of social groupings and things like that. Yeah. And so I, I think with that comes the shock of, why, for example, vaccine mandates and, and people who have legitimate, agree or disagree with it, people have legitimate religious claims of why they, they don't want to take this vaccine. And 
when people are baffled by why might why that may be the case, uh, it could be oh okay well maybe we've been viewing this religious uh, First Amendment uh, issue from a from a wrong perspective. Maybe we've been viewing it too much from a socio cultural angle rather than from like an actual fact that maybe these people really do have a religious um, claim to holding what they do. And so uh, I think that betrays a lot more about us than the people who take the religious exemption. And I bring this up for one, there was a report that came out yesterday. I saw where uh, an office in DC is keeping track of government workers who have taken uh, a religious exception to the vaccine card mandate. And so have taken an exemption from that and are keeping a list of that, which is, I think, unsettling there yep. um, to keep a running list of people's religious beliefs and how they have chosen to enact those. But um, yeah, I still think that there is a case where we'll see where this goes in the future, but at least for the time being, um, part of the reason I think we have an issue of religious freedom is because it's just dismissed as a legitimate option um, for, for behavior and for why people choose to live the way that they do. Yeah, I mean, it's been said so many times before. It's a cliche, right? But like this, this notion that you know, what is going, what's up with all these Christians uh, who object to, you know, same-sex marriage or uh, transgenderism or uh, abortion? Don't like all that religious stuff. Don't they know that's what you do on Sundays? But like Monday through Saturday, you know, that that no longer applies. And so that's kind of been the language, you know, from you know, a burger fell on that I've really heard as a sort of like, but like, no, like the socio-cultural factor says that you need to bake the cake or you need to, you know, support gender transitions in public schools. And it's like, well, no, because we actually believe this stuff that says that God tells us in scripture, like that is, that is conviction. Um, I just want to jump in. I think one thing that's interesting about what you're saying is that while there has been this proliferation of, um, rights issue and a lot of talk about human rights. And in fact, there's a line in one of Oz Guinness's books where he says that um, basically makes a contrast between freedom of religion and uh, as, as one of the, the base cornerstone right, which is how it has been viewed traditionally is like freedom of religion is what allows the other's rights to have. Well, what we've done is we have cut out um, the freedom of religion and instead said, well, we need to have all of these human rights instead. Well, what that does is then that ama- that makes human rights has become a quasi religion, right? Exactly. In itself, as something to pursue, and again, we go back to like, well, look, we have this whole canon over here of things to fight for. Why are you holding on to this this little religion thing? That's kind of a passe idea, right? I mean, just go ahead and sign on to this continuously growing list of human. Not that we're against human rights, but that if human rights is not based out of the belief in a higher power. Um, human rights without the, the, the belief in religious freedom and, and belief in God is one of the most absurd set right. of beliefs anyone can hold. Right. That's the deep irony, right? Is that you don't get human rights. You don't get the, the sort of this, the global statement on human rights. Uh, if you don't have it coming, you know, if you don't have that culture coming out of years and years of Christendom, right. Where it was ingrained in people that, you know, humans had dignity because they were created in the image of God. That this is the this is the whole Tom Tom Holland argument about uh, in his book Dominion. Um, that the sort of the great irony of this anti-Christian secularism uh, is that you don't get here without Christ, without Christendom, without history of Christendom. Um, and I think that that's really important because 
um, uh, what you actually see in in sort of a more Christian ethic uh, is not this idea of of maybe this is kind of going going all the way back to John MacArthur. You don't really get this idea of religious freedom as an absolute. What you get more is this idea of an exclusive truth claim to the to the gospel and to the words of scripture. But because of the things in there about you know common grace, about uh, all humans, regardless of of what they believe and what they believe in, are created in the image of God and therefore have dignity, and you can't be tra- can't be treated as such. Um, that it actually opens the space for toleration, and I think that. That's sort of uh, a um, something that gets confused a lot, or or people sort of throw away. They say, "Oh, well, if the government, for example, were to acknowledge, you know, and say, you know, we uh, uh, let's let's think about England, right? You know, the Queen worships at Westminster. You know, it, she is a she is a uh, she leads the, the sort of the church as the state representative. That's so foreign to us as as Americans because we we've 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 come from that, but we're, we're, we made uh, explicit decisions not to do that. Um, uh, But that even within that context, there can still be space for members of churches that, you know, that don't worship the same way as the church of England uh, that are more independent or Baptist or Presbyterian um, that there's room for uh, uh, Jews and Muslims and things like that. Um, Now they're not saying, uh, uh, everyone is sort of on the same space equally in terms of hierarchy of beliefs. But what they are saying is that, you know, this is our exclusive truth claim, but we, because of what we believe, we allow for toleration. That's a really complicated, I don't think I really said it well, but what I'm trying to say is that I actually don't really see this idea that just because a government or a, or a, a state were to say, this is what we, this is what we believe is true. Uh, necessarily means that it's going to sort of devolve into a theocracy where everybody will sort of be held at, at sword point to believe um, what the state commands. I guess I, that's kind of where I, I fall. You know, I wonder uh, though what, like, okay, let's say that the that America decides that Presbyterian PCA exclusively Christianity is the one true religion in America. Finally. Um, finally. <laughs> Hey, we started this revolution back in 1770s. <laughs> Enough of them were fought out of our meeting houses to get the king's attention over there across the pond. Uh, I mean, I don't know, man. I, I feel like if that were the case, there there are a lot of issues that would come up to that practically. One, it would put uh, <laughs> you have enough people who want power that would join the church just for that reason. Uh, you have a huge question of favors being given to people who are part of a church that one has decided as true. And so therefore you get people joining that church again for that reason. Um, and then even if there aren't like financial benefits and that like, Hey, you know, part of our tax, I was going to go to you. It's like, okay, well, why'd you make this decision other than just creating some kind of social upheaval and turmoil? I, I think the, the lack of a state sanctioned church or a state approved church is vastly superior than than anything else. Well, so what's interesting is in the Westminster Confession of Faith in chapter 23, uh, the this is the Rosa, the revised version uh, from 1788. So after the, the founding of the country, 
Um, yet as nursing fathers, it is the duty of civil magistrates, the state, to protect the church of our common Lord without giving the preference to any denomination of Christians above the rest um, in such a manner that all ecclesiastical persons, whatever, shall enjoy the full fruit, unquestioned liberty, blah, 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 blah. I, I mean, I think it's 1748 a, or 1789. That's 1788. 1788. And, okay. you know, the, the Westminster divines, I think, you know, they say, they don't say the civil magistrates to protect all religions. They say there was a belief in the Trinity, you know, as sort of like a, a sort of a quintessential Christian doctrine um, that, 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 the, that the state would approve. Now, like the question is, if the state were to acknowledge, you know, in the founding documents that there was a Trinity, you know, for example, we, they, I think the, the founders, they use uh, nature and nature's God. So let's, let's, for, let's say instead they use language like the Trinitarian God or something like that, you know, would that necessarily mean, um, you know, our country wouldn't have been open or tolerant of Muslims or Jews or Hindus or atheists. You know, I think the history of our country was, even though that's not, that Trinity is not in the, the founding documents, I think it's basically assumed by people at the time that what they mean by nature and nature's God is the Trinitarian God of the Old and New Testaments, but clearly had plenty of space uh, for people of different religions, uni, you know, Unitarians who, who rejected the Trinity. And so, um, I mean, I think I guess, if you were to say, I, I guess I just see the history of it and maybe not as, as persuasive as, you know, sort of the, the hypotheticals that people throw out today. So, I mean, the 1788 version of the Westminster Confession of Faith, I hear the, the room in there is enough that saying, Hey, we don't want for you to just acknowledge our Presbyterian form of, of Christianity. What we want is all denominations of Christianity, but it doesn't say only denominations of Christianity. So I, I think what, what, I think you could do a liberal reading of that and say that the hope for the confession is not just to show favoritism to, so for the States, uh, I think what they're saying is protect all denominations of Christianity, but not only the denomination of Christianity. And I do think that if you were to have language of the Trinity in our constitution, I think it would cause immense difficulties for Christian, for Jews and Muslims in this country. I think that that would would be very, very problematic and troubling for, for the state and for the attempts of making this a place where different faiths could be. Yeah. But I mean, the, uh, many of the founders, George Washington included, who, who helped craft these documents absolutely believed what, when they wrote nature and nature's God, that they meant the God of the old and new Testament, the Christian God, but he was, but he was incredibly tolerant of, of Jews. And there was a, there was a sort of a love infatuation between someone like Thomas Jefferson and some of the other founders with, with Muslims um, and Jews, because they, they didn't like the idea of the Trinity. They liked the sort of monotheism emphasis. Right. And so I actually think I, maybe you're right, but to me, it just seems that, and maybe it's one of those things like a slippery slope, right? The first generation understands the, the terms and the premises, so they can be tolerant, but sort of as you go, as you go, you know, generations past and you get away from the immediate context, there's a little bit more fundamentalism or, or hypervigilance, but, to me, it, it does seem that, uh, at least at the beginning of this, the founding of this country, there was a sort of preference towards Orthodox Christianity, but there was a there was room for to a tolerance for other religions to practice safely, 
because that was the culture, the heritage that it came up in. I think what I'm saying is that there's a reason that they chose nature and nature's God and not the God of the old and new testaments is that there was enough, there was enough awareness there that um, not everyone in this country held to those beliefs and that you but, were getting very why, close. You were right. getting very close to a specific doctrinal statement. But then why, why then allow states to establish churches for as long as they did? They did. They, so what I'm saying is that they clearly didn't see an issue with with saying nature's and you know nature and nature's God being sort of vague and not non particularly descriptive of the Trinitarian God. But they were completely fine with states having established churches. Yeah, so like, but kind of where's a, where's the how do so they guess, how do they reconcile those two things? Well, two, they eventually decided that was unconstitutional. One, they decided that was unconstitutional. Two, um, th- that doesn't mean that they were necessarily only okay with with the state sanctioned churches being uh uh being baptist or or you know episcopalian or presbyterian they may have been in fact fine with a unitarian established church or they may have been fine with a with a uh jewish established you know state church i mean so so we can you you can still say that doesn't exclude the possibility of them being okay with other religions having established churches Uh, and if you'd had a trinity trinity in the constitution that would have prevented that from happening I guess I just I would probably wrap up by saying that, you know, the the idea is uh, of and this is kind of getting more into sort of the the conversation that often happens when we talk about religious freedom, which then we get into this idea of sort of Christian nationalism or or if we're going to talk about preferences, you know, government showing a favor towards a certain religion or not. um, That, you know, often I think when I hear people talk about it. There's not really an emphasis on, well, we need to have a sort of theocracy, this idea that everyone must be sort of be um, a, uh, have the same level of devotion or pietism or adherence to the religion of the land. What it more is saying is that, look, as, as sort of a, as a body of people with a certain heritage and culture and history, you know, we believe these fundamental truths about humans and in human society, and that we believe these are the best way to order society. Um, and so the, the Christian or the, the state's preference toward a, a Christian fundamental truth is saying like, look, we recognize that oh, there's a lot, there's people out there who disagree with all these different truths, but that doesn't, or, you know, disagree about what is truth, but that doesn't negate the fact that there is a truth and a part of the government's responsibility is to ad- adhere toward that truth. When we talk about religious freedom, what often gets, I think, what, what people say is like, well, you, you don't have, you have religious freedom because there's all these different truth claims and everyone has different beliefs about what is true. And my sort of response to that is, yeah, that's, that's right, but that doesn't negate the fact that there is a truth. There is, a, a, there is an objective truth. And the question mm-hmm. then becomes, do we want the state or the government to recognize that truth? even while allowing space for people who, ne- who maybe disagree in certain areas or on all areas to, to ex- coexist peacefully in the land. I think that really becomes the question because we see this right now, let's say something like gender ideology, right? Like, do we believe that there are male and that man is created a male and female, or do we believe that, you know, men can be born in women's bodies and then must transition to adhere towards, gen- you know, truth claims about gender identity. I mean, that's a big question. Like, does the state take a side? Um, and, you know, 
I think we have to really confront ourselves with that, with that, those thorny questions, because that those are really where it comes out where, you know, all of a sudden now you're saying, okay, the government is starting to make a truth claim. If you say, well, we're against gender transition and things, well, it's like, okay, now the, the state is making a truth claim. What is that well, truth claim based on? You know, I think part of this is that famous story. This is a Republic if we can keep it. And I think so much of the way this country was designed and was set up was to have a virtuous public. And so these questions about, you know, should the state make decisions about gender ideology and should it, uh, you know, command and make adherence to certain religious doctrines, I think for the founders, a lot of that was, no, that's the job of the citizenry to make sure that is kept in check. Um, not not for the state to to say we hold to this specific set of doctrine. It is the job of the people within the states, the the public, the free public, to adhere to virtuous principles. And I think um, so. I don't think that the state coming in would actually solve that issue. Uh, for one, I don't. Again, it comes back to freedom. Uh, and then the other is I don't think that's how we were set up to begin with. So for me, it's a, it's a sort of chicken and egg question because, you know, the people make the laws, but the laws also form the people. And, you know, this, we saw this really evident after Obergefell. So, you know, before Obergefell, California, the state of California votes down same-sex marriage, how many times? Twice? Did they vote it down twice? I think in throughout. I'm not sure. I think it was, I think it was more than once. Maybe I'm wrong. You know, but then in 2015, all of a sudden, you know, when the laws change, the public opinion like reverses course, like very dramatically where, you know, now somewhere, I, I don't know what the current number is at, but it's well over 50% of the country believes in same-sex marriage. So then, you know, you wonder what has the greater effect? Was, was that in, was that, were people believing that for a long time, but were voting differently and, and answering differently in polls or did the change in the law actually instruct people and form their virtue in a certain way that says, okay, we now believe that this is fine. And I think that's an interesting question, like which comes first. And I I hear what you're saying about sort of the the design of the Republic. I think it's probably a little bit of both, but, you know, I I do think that there was quite a bit of distrust by many of the founders, not all, but some, maybe many of sort of populism, you know, purely, you know, pure populism. And so the idea was that the institutions uh, at the federal, the local state level do in some way help form the virtue of the citizenry. You know, you could argue that's a big reason for the, you know, the argument for public education. Um, But I, I I guess, yeah, I'd, I'd be interested in exploring that question more because, you know, if you can get 50 plus 1% of the country to believe something crazy, you know, is it, is it not, is it wrong for the state to then, you know, kind of turn around and say, well, that's really bad. We shouldn't, we shouldn't do that. You know what I mean? Yeah. I think that's a good question. And I think a thought experiment is probably the best way to end this episode. Let's do it. Um, This is, this is as much been a a lot of uh, consideration and thought and, um, you know, we ended uh, at this place where we're kind of wondering, okay, what does what does religious freedom mean? What does what does religion in this country mean? What is its relationship? Uh, um, 
and there's a lot of issues that we are facing and that uh, we've been facing for a long time and trying to work out. And uh, it is up to us as citizens, as not only citizens of America, but primarily citizens of heaven to cultivate uh, practices and habits um, that are in, in the context of which we're living that are appealing uh, and winsome to our neighbors. And so I think maybe as we do consider our religious freedom, I think it's good for us to consider how we can cultivate practices and relationships with those closest to us in our little communities. Uh, and that's going to be the biggest way that any kind of change or good happens is by demonstrating, loving, caring for, uh, being there for our neighbors, those who are involved in our communities. Um, you know, that is, uh, that's most important, whether you live in DC, Dallas, or Denver, I mean, that's, that, that's, that was a good little alliteration right there. That was, I like that. You know, last week I did the pup, uh, but with the pseudo in there. So silent P, but, and it was something a little harder, the D the dental sound. So here's a, a very quick aside on, on pronunciations. Somebody pointed this out on Twitter. Um, since technically the P in JPEG stands for photo, shouldn't it be JFEG? Boy, this is, let's, let's just cut it there. I didn't mean let's, to end the episode on a mind, mm-mm, you know, mm-mm, blowing mm-mm, people's mm-mm. minds, but I'm just throwing it out there. I, since we were talking about alliteration. What color is the dress? <laughs> um, well, Hey, thanks so much for being here with us as we, uh, talk about this and um, we'll be back next week. Again, we are excited and promise that next week uh, we'll be with Dr. Chad Van Dixhorn. Excited to be with him. You can follow us on Twitter, Robert at RD Hassler. You can follow me at Stockdale Will. Uh, like and subscribe. Please leave a review of your thoughts. Uh, let us know what you think. And uh, we look forward to being back with you next week. 